It's been a, a, an interesting challenge getting Bradley here. Um, her various uh, uh, issues with legal authorities in Britain and so on have uh, been hampering his life for the last little while. So our office has been uh, this week in a series of ups and downs. Has he got on the plane? Has it all worked out? Um, so by the time we saw him here, it was like that was a mission accomplished. He'd arrived. But of course, what's going to be most exciting is to hear from him about his ideas. So I'm delighted to welcome him to the stage, Bradley Garrett. Thank you for the introduction, Anne, and thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm still a little bit shocked that I'm, that I'm actually here. <laughs> um, I've been trapped in the United Kingdom for, for the past two years. Um, my passport was confiscated, and uh, arriving here in Australia is, is, I guess, the end of what's been a, a pretty incredible saga. So I'm, I'm really delighted to be here and to, to tell you the story of... Um, how this all happened. Uh, the story begins in 2008. Uh, it begins in London. This is Battersea Power Station. This is, um, it, it used to be the central uh, power station for all of London from the 1930s to 1980s. And if you, if you recognize the power station, it's probably because you saw it on the cover of um, the Pink Floyd's Animals album. It's a, it's a really iconic building, um, and it's, it's a building that most people in London will, will recognize quite iconic. Um, it's also been derelict for, for 20 years. And uh, we were having a discussion about how frustrating it was that we, that we couldn't access this building. Um, that, you know, this, this was an obvious site of heritage. It seemed to us that this was, this was a structure that was, that was important to the public, and we wanted to know what was inside. So um, we solved our curiosity in the obvious way. We hopped the fences and we snuck past the security guards, and we got inside, and what we found in there were these incredible control rooms uh, where they used to, to shift power across London. And I was in these control rooms, sort of, you know, having this, this, this very, very visceral connection to history, you know, walking around and doing all the things you can't do in a museum, right? You know, spinning all of the, the, the wheels and pulling the levers and, you know, pretending to shift power. Um, having an incredible time, and, and I realized, you know, we were onto something here. This was, this, this was incredible. It was an incredible feeling. And it was a feeling not of something new necessarily, but a feeling of kind of going back, of feeling what it was like to be a kid when you just kind of left the house and you went exploring. Right? And, and, and the, the, the visceral connection with places that you would have when you did that. So um, this is called urban exploration. It's, it's the exploration of off-limits places in urban environments. And urban explorers are, are interested in, in derelict places, in ruins, but also in live systems and infrastructure. Um, one of the first books about urban exploration was, was written by uh, a guy who called himself Ninjalicious. Uh, his, his, his real name was Jeff Chapman. Uh, but he, 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 he described it as an interior tourism that allows the curious minded to discover a world of behind the scenes sites. And I think it's a really beautiful description of what urban exploration is about. Um, just to give you a little bit of, of, of background to how I got here, uh, I used to be an archaeologist. Uh, I actually got my, my master's degree in archaeology from James Cook University in Townsville. And um, I worked for about five years as an archaeologist around the world. 
And I found myself becoming increasingly frustrated with a couple of things. First, I was uncomfortable with that I was being put in a position where I was making decisions for other people about what should be important to them. Right? I was telling them what heritage was significant. I was making decisions about what sites were going to be preserved and what sites were going to be destroyed. But the other thing is that I had this sort of image in my head of what archaeology was going to be. Um, you know, probably based on, on Indiana Jones. And of course, I, it ended up being incredibly boring. Um, I, I spent loads of time just sort of, you know, digging and finding nothing or working on construction sites and watching, watching these excavators, uh, you know, not turn anything up. So in 2008, uh, I started a PhD, the University of London, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to find people who were kind of amateur archaeologists, people who were, do, who were doing archaeology on their own terms. And urban explorers were one of the groups that I wanted to get connected with. But after that sort of initial experience in Battersea Power Station, I realized that the thing that I was always looking for as an archaeologist, I, I had found it, personally, uh, once we had snuck into that power station. So what followed was um, a rather incredible five years where we snuck into over 300 places across the world. Soon after the power station, we started sneaking into uh, abandoned Victorian hospitals. And these had been uh, closed down since the 1980s. And there was a, when you went into the hospital, you would find these sort of um, uh, personal records in there. You could dig through patient files. Uh, you would find medical equipment. You know, all of this stuff was left behind. It was almost as if there was kind of a rapture, you know, and all of a sudden everyone just evaporated from the building. Um, and we photographed a lot of this stuff, and we documented these places very thoroughly. And, and a few years later, uh, I went back to many of these places and found that they were gone. They, they had been knocked down. So as an archaeologist, I was really fascinated by the idea that you know, we, had we had created the most robust set of documentation of these sites that existed, and we did it all without permission. We also snuck into uh, industrial ruins. And industrial ruins are, are, are incredible spaces, especially in terms of, of uh, the visuals and aesthetics of the space. You know, you've got this sort of these decomposing buildings that are being sort of reclaimed by nature, and of course they're quite, you know, brutal with the sort of the metal and glass and um, uh, industrial remnants that you find behind, and then very often this, this is offset by the, by the softness of nature taking everything back. And it occurred to me that, that all of these photographs that we were taking of these places, um, all of these records that we were creating, they weren't actually snapshots, they were more, it was more a sense of sort of capturing a building in motion, right? We, we could feel these places collapsing, and you could indeed go back sort of every week, and you would watch the building decay a little bit more. There was one explorer who did um, a project where he, he marked a spot in one of those asylums and, and went back every season and took a photo series of about 20 or 30 photos, and when you put them all together in a slideshow, you could watch the corridor decaying. It's an incredible thing to see. The other thing that occurred to me when we were exploring these industrial ruins is, is how fragile our existence is. It really takes no time at all once we stop maintaining these spaces for the spaces to, to begin to fall apart. We started traveling further from London, exploring these spaces, and we eventually ended up in, in the remains of the Soviet Union. And we found... Um, we found this 
military base called Vogelsang, which means birdsong, in the middle of a forest near Berlin. Um, at one point, there were 12,000 Soviet troops stationed at this base, and there were nuclear launch pads there. Now it's completely empty. There was no one there. And we spent um, about three days in the space, and we actually uh, camped in the space. We had very little money, and we wanted these adventures to continue. We wanted to press further, so camping in ruins was uh, a way of, of doing that. But in doing that, we also were building a really strong sense of place, and we were also sort of, I don't know, kind of bonding as a tribe, you know? When you, when you sort of go out and you roll out your sleeping bags in the basement of this, this abandoned building, and very often you're woken up by property owners or, you know, people with dogs or police or whatever, and you get moved on, um, you know, you, you, you build very close friendships with the people that you're exploring with. And you also have a lot of time to talk and think about what you're doing and what it means. And um, we started having conversations about what we were doing in photographing ruins and exploring these spaces, whether this was really about appreciating alternative material histories, or whether we were actually fetishizing other people's misfortune. You know, was there something kind of neo-colonial about this, about going into other people's spaces and photographing them? Was there something kind of disrespectful there? And then something in the midst of those sort of conversations, something uh, kind of incredible happened. We were on the way back from Poland, and uh, we had some information about a ruin that we wanted to access, and it was actually a ruin of a metro system. Uh, Antwerp began building a metro system in the 1980s, and they sort of ran out of money. And we knew that there was potentially a line inside the metro that was never completed. And we started scrolling around on Google Earth, and we were driving back in the car, you know, on a Blackberry, you know, scrolling around on Google Earth, and then we find this giant hole in the ground, and it's right over where we think the tunnel is supposed to be. So, right, there's only one way to find out what's in there. We abseiled down the hole. Um, we had no idea what, what was down there or whether we could get back out, <laughs> by the way, but, you know, if, uh, if you knew what was going to happen, it wouldn't be exploration. Uh, so when we got to the bottom, we had, in fact, found this unfinished metro, and it was absolutely incredible. We, we walked dozens of miles of tunnels, and we found uh, there weren't just tunnels, there were also the stations there, so we saw the stations. And, um, and we walked until we essentially ran out of food and water. <laughs> we did find an emergency exit, so uh, you know, we, did, we didn't get trapped in the, the pre-metro, although that was, a, that was a distinct possibility. So we came back to London in 2010, and we were very, very solidly formed as a crew now. And uh, we decided to christen ourselves the London Consolidation Crew because we had sort of um, taken a couple of rogue crews in London and pieced them together into this, this crew that was, um, that was very set on achieving our goals. And our goals had changed over the years. Uh, we were becoming less interested in ruins, both because of that kind of guilt that we were feeling about... Um, that there was something potentially exploitative about what we were doing. Um, but we were also thinking that when we found that pre-metro, there must be similar stuff 
in London, right? Like, what, what is underneath our feet every day as Londoners that we're not seeing? And so we devoted the next two years to trying to, to, to open up every hidden space in London we could possibly find. And we also started filming what we were doing. Uh, so what I'd like to do now is to show you uh, the first five minutes of a film called Crack the Surface. Uh, you can find the rest of the film online if you want to watch it. It's, it's on Vimeo and it's, it's easy to find. Um, the film will give you a little bit more information about urban exploration, but what I'm really interested in is I, I, I want you to get a sense of what it feels like to be on these explorations. And hopefully you'll get that from the film. spaces that we define as beautiful but other people define as strange and weird places that you wouldn't think of going to. We are just going to many different places, whatever we can find. Usually it's not so legal and what we're trying to do is to go to places which have a photographic interest. So basically, if they look, look nice, it's great. Uh, you know, cranes, rooftops, uh, decaying stuff for those who find it pretty, uh, trains, anything which can look pretty. There's two different types. You've got sort of urban exploration, which is exploring derelict sites, I believe, and then you've got infiltration of live sites, um, which you tend to kind of get the guys who are more dedicated doing, because it's a little bit riskier and can verge on criminal trespass on top of civil trespass. The legality kind of jumps from place to place and from, you know, location to location. So you might get caught one place and the security guard will just tell you to leave. You get caught another place, you end up in jail. There are plenty of places where we've been and we've been called by the owners or security and it was just fine. We haven't even met the police or anything. You know, this is perfectly fine. There are other places where we've been taken to the police station, we spent the night in there. Still, we don't have any record, we're just fine. So I guess this is okay. Now, I reckon there are probably some places if we had been caught in there, it would have been a little bit worse, but you know, not anything that bad. Because people don't have the money to demolish them. 
it's an interesting infrastructure, you know, basically seeing what the tube tunnels look like from outside a tube train. Uh, it's an interesting seeing where the water goes when it disappears underground. Um, it's an interesting going places people don't go, you know. The old caveman saying is you never know what's around the next bend. I think the interest is the adventure. We're not going just to take photos. We happen to take photos, but really what we want to have is the adrenaline rush and, you know, the feeling that you, you're somewhere that you don't belong to, that you could be caught at any time and just have to run and, you know, it's adventure. superpowers. <laughs> so um, what we eventually discovered in London uh, were, were five distinct subterranean layers. And the first thing that we got into was the sewer system. Uh, the sewer system in London is a, is a feat of engineering. It's absolutely incredible. It was built in the mid-19th century. It's comprised of 318 million hand-laid bricks. Uh, and it was built from, from what used to be rivers running through the center of London. Those were covered over, and those, those became what are now the hidden rivers of London. And so we wanted to walk all of those hidden rivers. We wanted to see what they looked like. And of course, when we got down there, we were, we were blown away that they were, they were this gorgeous. Um, and the thing that's really astounding is that getting to them, all it required was a house key stuck it in the manhole and popped it and you could go down. Millions of people walk over these manholes every day and no one thinks to open it up and just go down the ladder and see what's there. It was that simple. From the sewer system, we got into uh, electricity tunnels. This is where all of the telecommunications, fiber optics and, and, and gas networks 
run through. And again, there's this, this incredible um, feeling of sort of, you know, being in the, in the connective tissue of the city, right? These are the places where sort of all, all of the sort of data packets that are flowing through London are going right next to us through these cables. Um, so it sort of, it moved from feeling like when we were exploring ruins, it was very much about sites, right? Like Battersea Power Station was about going into a single location. But in these infrastructural networks, what we were finding was connections between places, right? And all of a sudden, the city, our sort of, our, our vertical imagination of what constituted the city started sort of, you know, expanding in a way that was, that was totally unpredictable. We also found um, a really quirky space. Uh, we found the system called the mail rail. It's, it's a six and a half uh, mile system that is constructed very much like the tube, except everything's in miniature. Uh, and there were these, these tiny trains down there called mini Yorks that the post office used to put post on to take it across the city. So the, the sorting offices for the post office, which are at street level, they connected to the mail rail at various places, and they had these sort of spiral slides where they would chuck the post bags on there and they would go down. So obviously, you know, we got on one of the slides and we slid down 30 meters to the bottom of this thing, and we found the mail rail. This was built in, I think it was 1919, um, but in 2001, they decided that this wasn't economically viable. So since that time, no one had seen it. And it was, it was amazing that after only a decade, they had completely sort of left the, the public consciousness. So when we, when we found it and we took photos of the mail rail and we posted them online, it went bonkers. I mean, all of our, all of our blogs crashed. We had uh, loads of people suddenly interested in, in what we had been doing and then, and then suddenly, you know, tracing it back and going, oh God, you guys have been in the sewers, you've been in these electricity tunnels. Um, and one of the, we got a lot of comments from people uh, about the fact that, that, you know, they walked over this every day, essentially, and didn't know that it was there. You know, they walk from home to work, and there's, there's this six-and-a-half-mile tunnel system with the electricity on that is underneath the city. And I guess, you know, it, people were, were kind of frustrated to know that we fight so hard for every inch of space at street level, and there was all of these miles of tunnels that weren't being used for anything. The post office were also really frustrated <laughs> when we released these photos. Um, and, uh, and this is where things start to take a bit of a turn. So one of our other missions over these couple of years was to sneak into um, abandoned tube stations. There are 18 tube stations that have something remaining in them. There are 14 tube stations which are um, actually interesting and worth getting to. And over the course of two years, we made it to all of the stations and we photographed them and we're releasing the photos online. At this point, we had a little bit of a following and so <laughs> we had a sort of uh, people were rooting us on, yeah, get to the next station. What we didn't know is that the police were also <laughs> paying attention to what we were doing and they knew exactly which stations we had been to and they were narrowing them down, right? So they were hoping to catch us in the act. Um, they didn't in the end. We finished all of the stations. I finished my PhD. I published my thesis. And I took off to Cambodia on a research project. So this was, uh, this was in August of 2012. And when I came back from Cambodia, uh, my plane was stopped on the runway 
at Terminal 3, and a little notification came on that said, the police are boarding the plane, can everyone return to their seats? I knew it was for me. Um, (laughs) The police uh, cuffed me on the plane, took me through passport control and handcuffs, where my passport was taken, and while I was in custody, um, they took a battering ram to my front door. They confiscated all of my PhD materials, my hard drives, my computers, my phone, my notebooks, anything that could contain data. And uh, they eventually charged me and 11 other explorers with conspiracy to commit criminal damage, which is a thought crime. What had happened is that they were looking for evidence of a substantive offense. They were looking for evidence of criminal damage or burglary, something they could pin, up, pin on us, but we hadn't done anything criminal. So they charged us with a thought crime. Because they said that um, when we were exploring these tube stations, we were reckless as to whether damage could be caused while we were in there. So <laughs> this went on for two years. Um, I I was trapped in the United Kingdom, uh, and it wasn't until last Friday that I actually had my passport returned to me. And that was simply because I was coming here, and I was, you know, getting my lawyers to really pressure the home office to finally return my passport. So they returned it to me at 4 p.m. on Friday. My flight was at 9 a.m. Monday morning. I got to the airport. They swiped my passport. And I, got, I had that moment, you know, when you, get a, you, you sweat a little bit at the, at the border, right? I had that moment where they swiped the passport and he looked at me and he looked at the screen and he looked at me and he looked at the screen and he went, you're not getting on this plane. <laughs> he actually showed me what was on the screen. It said, not authorized for travel. Um, so I went to the U.S. Embassy immediately. Well, you know, I had missed my plane. What else am I going to do? So I went to the U.S. Embassy. They gave me a second passport and... Uh, and was kind enough to rebook another flight. And I got on that plane and I made it. So I'm out. (laughs) So I'm sure that many of you will have experienced uh, having private security guards uh, attempt to stop you from taking photos in spaces, which is ironic because very often you're being filmed by the same security personnel. And it's interesting that images have such power, you know, what is, what is the fear behind someone taking a photo? What do they think you're going to do with that photo? Um, we were really baffled by, by the arrest because we hadn't done anything criminal. But it seemed that the concern over the photographs that we had taken, uh, these photographs that, of what we considered public space, right, these are spaces that are built and maintained with taxpayer money. We wanted to see these spaces. We wanted to share them with people. Um, what, what this public private partnership that is Transport for London was concerned about seemed to be a sort of a a future threat that might manifest because we had taken these photos. And they couldn't quite articulate what that was. But there's an assumption that stopping us from taking the photos in their eyes possibly prevented that future threat from manifesting. But this seems to confuse the issue. Because if I go to uh, the website for Transport for London and I search for a higher photography location, it turns out that I can pay 600 pounds an hour to take photographs of an abandoned station as long as I've got uh, 5 million pounds in liability insurance. 
So it would seem that photography of hidden space is fine as long as we're willing to pay for the privilege. It would seem perhaps that maybe people with money aren't a threat, or maybe even that even national security has a price. So you're going to think that I'm totally paranoid at this point, <laughs> and I'm going to prove to you that I am by showing you <laughs> this PDF that was put together uh, by the National Counterterrorism Center in the United States, where they've uh, cited my website at the top left corner there, and they've implied that the photography that we're taking is potentially going to aid terrorists in gaining access to these spaces. And I have to wonder, if I had paid for the privilege to take those photos, would I still be hating terrorists? So you'll get now that it wasn't exploring these places that got us arrested or, or even photographing them. It was doing what I'm doing right now. It was sharing information that got us arrested. Because in doing that, I opened out a discussion about urban space that, that made visible the, the, the boundaries that are being circumscribed around us all the time. And, you know, these boundaries that are being uh, rolled out by private corporations are being rolled out in cities all over the world. You know, CCTV systems um, have this amazing ability to actually stop us from doing things even if they don't work, right? This is the dark secret of CCTV. If we think we're being watched, we'll regulate our own behavior. The cameras don't even have to work. And you can see that when we sneak into the tube, for instance, and we run past dozens of cameras, there's actually no response. There's, there's no one there. Right? So it seemed to me that these, these corporations were treating us as photographers of, of hidden spaces in the same way that they would treat computer hackers that leaked classified documents. Right? So I came up with this notion of, of place hacking, which is sort of the subtitle of my book, place hacking the city, because it seemed to me that, that there, there was a, a, a synchronicity here between us and computer hackers, right? These are closed systems, whether we're talking about closed virtual spaces or closed physical spaces. And if you can find the loophole in those spaces and get behind them and kind of get to the source code, you can start to rewrite that code. And, and that, I guess, is, is, is what they fear. So my passport was taken... Uh, I guess to trap me, but more than that, my passport was taken to silence me. Um, it, it was it was to uh, to put put the fear into us to stop exploring, but of course we didn't. Um, I think that information should be shared. I think that transparency is important in a democracy. I want to know what's being built in my city, by whom, with what funds, and to what ends. And I think these are all perfectly reasonable expectations, just as is the expectation that people are going to explore the environments they live in. I don't want to live in a city where people have stopped exploring. That's not a city that I would find interesting, and I hope that many of you would agree with me. When we explore cities, when we ignore those no trespassing signs and cross those borders, whether we can see them or not, we open up opportunities for, for, for critical creativity. You know, as, as Mark said in the film, we make the impossible possible. But we also recreate these places in our image. And I think that's really important. You know, if we're going to live in cities where we are citizens, we've got to interact with places, we have to recreate places in our image. 
So you remember in 2008, we were staring at these chimneys and we were um, frustrated that we couldn't get any closer. Um, well, in 2014, uh, long after the arrest, we returned to the chimneys with some ropes and we climbed to the top. So this experience was like, I mean, I can't ever describe to you what this feels like to be standing on the top of the chimneys at Battersea Power Station, you know, with the clouds floating by, watching the sort of lights twinkle in the city. It was an absolutely incredible experience. And of course, it's an experience that I couldn't have been given. I had to take it. And it taught me that, you know, space, and especially urban space, I think, you know, can always be reimagined if we continue trespassing. And we don't have to go somewhere else. We don't actually have to leave the island, you know, that's become our prison. We can reimagine those spaces again and again. And I think that the experiences we've had and, and the stories that, that we've been able to share about an inspiring world where adventure can still happen despite all of this, these, these changes in security and surveillance, you know, that, that's, that's the story uh, that I really want to tell. But I guess more importantly, I want people to be able to look back on this period of time. You know, perhaps in the future we won't be able to explore like this, right? And I want people to look back on this period of time and, and you know, and see this book and think we were still trying, you know, we, we pushed back. Adventure must be pursued despite the consequences. So I found this, um, this little piece of graffiti on a walk a few weeks ago, and it really stuck with me um, because I remembered that first night in the, in the Battersea control rooms and the, the terror that I felt because we had just hopped a fence, right? And I realized that, you know, here I was five years later, and not only did I not feel that fear anymore, um, but I was doing things like, you know, standing here talking that I would never imagine I, I would have done in 2008. Exploring had changed me. Um, it made me realize how important it is not just to confront challenges, but actually to seek them out. So I'm not going to ask any of you to become an urban explorer. I think it's not something that most people want to do. Um, what I am going to do, however, is to ask you to think more about what you don't see and about the, the visible and invisible barriers that are being built around us, barriers that are, that are changing the way we behave. And I want to ask you to think about trespassing those boundaries in, in whatever small ways you're willing to do and to discuss more openly whether those boundaries and barriers are ethical, legal, or justified. And I want to ask you to think about whether trespass might just be essential to democracy. Thanks very much. We have some time now for questions and discussion from you. You will notice that there's a microphone here for questions, and there's also one up in the mezzanine level just there. So uh, if and when you have a question for Bradley, um, do come forward, and we'll, we'll take that as part of the discussion. Um, that was in, wonderful to see those images and to get a sense of uh, the experience of what you've done. Uh, certainly from reading your book, one of the most... Uh, uh, one of the fascinating things was to read your description of how tired and dirty <laughs> and, uh, you know, incredibly ragged and peculiar looking you were by the time you'd come out of, uh, 
come out of the, you know, the, the, the abandoned metro. Um, there are many of us, I think, who would very much appreciate that um, uh, sense of adventure and exploration, um, but as you say, are not necessarily going to go out and climb 67 storeys or go tunnelling down. That the kind of, um, the, the kind of uh, things that urban explorers do require a particular kind of physical courage and particular skills and, you know, the, you know, the, the, the shots of people clipping on the carabiners or abseiling down into that giant black hole really illustrate that. Where did you get those skills uh, from? Were you somebody who had always been out there with the ropes or was this a whole new thing? It, it sounds really bizarre, but, you know, this was part of the job, right? I, I mean, I was doing a PhD on urban exploration. I knew nothing about photography when I began this project. I knew nothing. I had no idea uh, how to abseil or how to ascend. Um, these are all things that I, that I learned out there. But it's, it's also, you know, it's part of what makes it um, uh, such an incredible experience is because you're out there with your friends and you're, and you're learning together, right? And if you get it wrong, the consequences are potentially really severe. So, so you know, you do go out and you practice and you work on these things and you make sure that you know what you're doing. You know, urban exploration, it, 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 it doesn't look easy, but it, it looks like, you know, you look at the photo and you just think, oh, fine, yeah, they abseiled down into that thing. But there's so much behind that that you don't see, all of the research that goes into these locations. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't recommend doing what we did in Antwerp and just abseiling into the hole. You know, know, know what's in the hole first. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of work that goes behind this, and I think that's... Um, uh, hopefully that comes through in the book, because I don't think it comes through in the photos. No, I think the photos are all about making it look spectacularly beautiful and yeah. atmospheric, but not, not so much of the grind. I mean, that tells us really something that, that is clear from, um, from, you know, listening to you talk about it, which is that really you're being an ethnographer yeah. of that group of people. And, you know, in the same way that somebody who was, you know, living on a Pacific island or in a remote community would learn um, a set of skills, a language perhaps, to, to be able to be part of that, that you were really doing that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that we totally understand this in, in the context of an anthropologist going away to mm. do this kind of long-term ethnographic work. But when we think about doing it in an urban environment, in our own city, we all of a sudden sort of shortwire, you know, we can't understand an ethnographer kind of, you know, working closer to home. Mm. But, um, you know, whether, whether this is geography or sociology or anthropology, I don't think it matters, you know. It, 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 it is what it needed to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got a question here. Did you ever meet um, a property owner or a guard that kind of understood what you were doing and wanted to share some of the history with you? Yeah, we, we had that all the time. We actually had, <laughs> we actually had um, really sympathetic police sometimes. We, got, we were climbing this skyscraper in, um, in, uh, it was in, in Vauxhall in London, and uh, we were seen on the cameras going in. Of course, we didn't know that. We went all the way to the top and we we're happily taking photos. And then we hear sirens, which you always hear in London, but then they stopped by the building. And then more sirens came and then we looked down and there were vans. We're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, they're here for us. So we said, okay, let's, let's just go down and we'll meet them at the gates and, you know, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> um, and when we got there, uh, the security guards were really irate and, and the police were kind of like, you know, why are you guys here? Are you stealing things? What's in your bags? And so, so then we open our bags and we've got these, you know, $10,000 cameras. 
and the police are like, okay, well, let's see the photos. Right. So we start flipping through the photos, like, wow, these are great. <laughs> <laughs> these are really, it's really interesting. And meanwhile, the security guard is like, veins popping out of his neck, arrest them, arrest them. You know? and, then, and then one of the cops came over and he said, um, he, was like, he was like, look, this is weird, what you guys are doing. Like, why can't you just go to the pub like normal people? <laughs> And I, saw, I pulled him aside and I was like, seriously, can we have a conversation? Do you really think that going to the pub is a more productive use of my time than climbing the skyscraper and taking photos and sharing them with people? And we actually had a really good conversation about it. At the end of the night, the police sort of, you know, waved us and sent us on our way. The security guard was still fuming. <laughs> That's cool, thank you. Um, one of the things, when you talk about the kind of places that you go, it, you know, those, um, the places, either those derelict, decaying, abandoned places, but also those live, what you, live sites where all those services are. Those are two parts of the city, one of which are the derelict and abandoned, and the other that are the, effectively the utilities. It's how the city works, that kind of infrastructure thing. Um, and those are parts of the city that were being kept away from, effectively, the decaying and the useful. What kind of view of the city do you think that gives us when we don't see those parts of the city? Oh, wow, yeah. It's, there, there was someone recently who did a project where they actually mapped out um, three miles of space around their house and then looked at the percentage of spaces they can actually access, and it's incredibly small, you know? And you think about what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, going from home to work, shopping to the grocery store, whatever, and you think about all the spaces you actually can't enter and where you can't go. And our, our geography is incredibly limited. So I felt like when, when you know, going into, going into abandoned buildings is great because they become these kind of temporary autonomous zones where, you know, you can, you know, you can, you can jump over the fence and you can do what you like in there and then it becomes this kind of free space that you can access again and again. So sometimes we would like throw parties in these abandoned buildings, which was great, you know. But then when we started getting into, um, uh, the infrastructural stuff, and also climbing skyscrapers, this incredible thing happened where our geography didn't just expand, like there were more spaces we could access, but our, our, our geography became more vertical than horizontal. You know, so the city, we, we always sort of imagine the city um, in profile, like as if you had taken this hot knife and just sort of sliced it down the middle of the city, and then you can see all of the sort of innards and the tunnels and things. And the more we explored the city, the more we understood how all of these things were connected. And we, can, we could actually traverse the city underground. We would do this in Paris sometimes, and we could get across the city faster through the catacombs and electricity tunnels and things and pop out of a manhole than if we had, you know, driven the car. It was really Not bizarre. nearly as much traffic under <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, I really love that, and I really like it. Um, kind of going into places that you're allowed to go to, and I particularly like going um, with my dogs to places like <gasps> golf courses or, you know, racetracks. And um, I just always think about animals in the city and all the places they can go to, like cats and rats and, you know, I guess in London, foxes, um, that can go, like they can cross boundaries and they can explore. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about animals in the underground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, um, in the sewers, we encounter rats. Um, they're, they're, some of the hidden rivers have more rats than others, but you also encounter foxes that are building dens and things. I don't know if you... Do you remember um, 
the Shard, which is the, the largest skyscraper in the EU, at one point there was a fox that was living at the top of the Shard. You know, and there were, there were people online saying, oh, what a lucky fox. Yeah, he's, he's got a great view. And, you know, it's like, you, know, you could just go there, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, everyone's had that experience of seeing a bird fly to something and you think, oh, wow, isn't that amazing? Would it, imagine if you could just land on the rooftop like that, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't, it's, we do encounter sort of animals and, and animal spaces, and that's part of the sort of, you know, process of of nature reclaiming these spaces, but it's also kind of inspirational to see animals move through things and want to follow them. Yes. I was really interested when you talked about um, how you felt guilt about going into some of these places and that you, um, as a group, you discussed it and you thought more about the impact that you were having. And I, so my question is just, um, not everybody feels that way. And I'm thinking that by encouraging people to do urban exploration, you would get people that would go down there and cause damage and, and things like that. So I was just wondering if by promoting urban exploration on a large scale, whether it would just ruin it for the people who like you. Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's this weird thing that happens when you explore a space. Well, I mean, Battersea Power Station is a good example. After I had gone in there a few dozen times, I started to feel this sense of ownership over the space, and I wanted to sort of protect it and keep other people out, right? And of course, and the, I mean, it's totally ironic, right? So you, <laughs> um, I think you have to be, you always have to be cautious of, of feeling that inclination to want to stop other people from experiencing the space in the way they want to experience it. I mean, you know, if some kids want to go into this industrial ruin that I think is incredibly beautiful and I want to photograph and they want to just smash stuff up, maybe they need that, you know? Maybe, maybe if they hadn't done that, they would have done something much more violent, you know? I mean, I just, I, I feel like we have to, part of this process is, is, is about sort of, you know, leaving spaces open and leave, letting them be fluid and let, you know, leaving a little bit of a, of a kind of chaos element. Like, yeah, we can't control what other people do and that's okay. Just relax and let it happen. You know? uh, Bradley, my name's Glenn. Thank you for the talk. I'm compelled to ask, do you have any plans while you're in Sydney? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to put the kibosh on? <laughs> um, I'm just th conscious that we have a really fantastic, enormous new tunnel here at the Opera House, but... I told Anne when I was walking over here, I could smell the tunnel. You know, I was getting, I was getting, it's like that Scooby-Doo moment where I was just going to, you know, ride the fumes straight into the tunnel. Um, there's so much to explore in Sydney. I, I, I would love to stay here for a month. Um, there are a lot of drains that the, ca that the cave clan have been in since the 1970s, and, I, you know, I would love to go see some of the drains here. Um, I think I'm, I'm probably not going to have enough time, but I'll be, I'll be back. <laughs> Can I, just, can I just ask you, in the context of, of Sydney and what you might want to explore, you know, we have a prime view um, of the Harbour Bridge, which has been very successful making a very managed experience out of having people climb the bridge. Um, and huge enthusiasm for that, um, which I guess is sanitised. Uh, it, it's kind of a form of... Uh, taking ownership of that piece of infrastructure, but in a very kind of controlled and safe way. Well, it's kind of, I can kind of relate it to, to, to ruin exploration because um, 
I've thought about this a lot. You know, what what is it about going into a ruin that is in the process of decaying that's so enticing, and 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 why does that feel so much different than going into a heritage site? And it's because it's been stalled out at a particular and and relatively arbitrary point. You know, someone's decided to kind of freeze it. And so when you go there, you know what to expect, and you kind of know what's going to happen, right? So I guess, I mean, there's, there's obviously a space for that, and it's, mm. and it's great. And I love that enthusiasm. I mean, we have, um, you've got open house weekends here, yeah. right? Yeah, we have open house weekends in London. And it, I mean, the turnouts for these things are incredible. Like, everyone wants to see the crossrail tunnel, obviously, you know? <laughs> and, the, and the queues are enormous. And that's great. And, you know, I, I want people to go and see those spaces. But also, you know, if someone wants to sneak in and see it in the middle of the night, it's really not that big a deal. You know, there's nothing nefarious going on. So I just, I feel like there's a, there's a, there's a place for all of those kinds of things. But, you know, building the viewing platform on the, on the top of the bridge... It was, it was a brilliant move, and it's clearly um, a nod to the fact that, well, yeah, we all want to see the view from the top of the bridge, um, but if the viewing platform wasn't there, people would still do it anyway. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, Bradley, everything that you're saying sounds totally cool. I should say that. Um, but I wonder if part of the, um, the knee-jerk reaction that you're facing a lot of the time is the, the fear of the owners or the security guards that, well, if, if they hurt themselves or worse, they're gonna get, we're going to get the hell sued out of us. So not just for anyone that's thinking of exploring, but maybe their, their families that, you know, if, something, if they were to be injured or killed, is there, what's, what's your thoughts on what the responsibility of the uh, explorer and also anyone that might make decisions for them if they were to be killed or hurt really badly, if there's a trade-off that you need to basically say and say publicly, I am stepping away from any rights that I have. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, really, there's a real kind of um, libertarian strain in the urban explorer community, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, these are people who want to be able to take responsibility for themselves and for their actions. And I think it's quite interesting that, you know, urban exploration is, is um, becoming so much more popular in this kind of political climate because, because we are very much coddled, you know, with health and safety laws. And, and I think a lot of people feel very restricted and restrained and frustrated that they don't have the ability to take responsibility for their actions. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, part of the process of the exploration, th th these are the kind of underlying politics to the explorations, is it's actually about speaking back and you know none of these explorers that that i met there were about about a hundred people that i met over the course of those five years not a single one of them would have ever held a, a property owner liable if something had happened to them um but of course yeah i mean there's there's no sort of waiver to sign as you go down in the sewer so. <laughs> And you do also, I mean, there are people who have been killed, not so much, I mean, base jumping, I think you talk about. There are instances of people who are involved in those kind of activities who have died. Yeah, there, there are a few explorers that have mm. died as well. Mm. Um, mm. But I think it's, it, it's a lot safer than it looks. Because the, <laughs> the thing is, you know, we, we're, we're so distracted all the time, right? Like, it's actually when you're walking through the city, you're staring at your phone, crossing the street, like, that's when you're more likely to get hurt. When you're exploring, you're really tuned in. You're really present. You're really paying attention to what's going on. You know exactly where you're putting your feet. You know, you're testing your weight on things. Um, and, and, you know, you're sort of in that cautious mode. But that's part of the appeal, right, is because we're, we're so often not in the present. 
you know, we're, we're thinking, oh, I've got to do this today, I'm rushing around, or, you know, you're being distracted or, or, you know, tugged and pulled. And the great thing about being on an exploration is you're just there and you can't be anywhere else. Yes. Hi, Bradley. I think it's great that you got out. Thank you for coming. Um, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Uh, in a way, it brings back some of the things I used to do as a kid when we used to go exploring on our bikes and we'd find greenhouses and old air raid shelters and things. We'd just, shall we, shan't we? Yes, we will. And then someone's coming. Run, we hide or whatever. But the thing that gets me about what you're doing is um, the narrow-mindedness and stupidity of the government and bureaucracy in England. I think they should be thanking you because when you look at the tunnel you went through where there's water and there's power and there's lights... You're amateurs and you're just sneaking in, you're just lifting up a manhole with a key. And the vulnerability of some of that infrastructure, they should have been questioning about what should we do, how can we protect this stuff, uh, instead of which they're locking you up. I just think it's stupid. But um, has anybody ever asked you about what you did, how you did it, and how can we improve things? Especially that, in this age of terrorism, you know? Yeah, I mean... That would have been the appropriate response on the part of on the part of on the part of TFL would be to call us and say, "How did you guys get in? You know, we need to we need to patch it up. We need to fix it. We need to know how you how you did it." Um, and we probably would have given them that information. Um, but I mean, the the, pro the problem, I guess, security all over London has improved because of what we've done. I mean, when when we snuck into the shard and we climbed it the first time, there was one security guard on the shard, and it, you know, he was asleep. And we slept past him, and you know, again, there's the guilt. He's like, now a that, tragic that, unemployed. Yeah, person. that guy. Uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> that guy um, probably lost his job. But then they they hired 12 more security guards, and you know, no one was getting into the shard after that. So I mean, it has improved their security. But then there's another really interesting thing that that began happening, as we started revealing these spaces, um, entrepreneurs stepped in and started buying them and turning them into things. So we had gone into these these uh, World War II air raid shelters that had been empty since World War II. No one had done anything with them. Um, and we photographed all of the empty tunnels and posted the photos online. And now um, one of them has been purchased and they're turning into an underground hydroponics garden, which is <laughs> kind of weird and awesome. And one, one of the abandoned tube stations is being turned into a nightclub or something. Um, the mail rail, get this, they're turning it into a ride. I mean, it's going to be like a... <laughs> It's going to be a heritage attraction with a ride in there. Pretend um, you're a letter. Yeah. You, the thing, that, the thing that, I, that I didn't tell you about the mail rail is um, on one of the occasions we were down there, obviously you saw that the electricity was on. Um, the trains don't have keys. It's just sort of a green button. <laughs> and one of the explorers you know, pressed the button and the train started going. Right? And so he drove, he drove the train like a mile and a half down, down this tunnel and then it derailed. <laughs> Um, that sounds really bad, but it just the, t the track wasn't set right because you know it had been mothballed for ten years and it just sort of came off the track. Um, but I think you know. So when when they when we saw the BBC announce that this was going to be turned into a heritage attraction and people could ride the train, I was like, Luke, you've got to put in your an application because you're the only one qualified to drive the train. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. I mean, a bit of levity on the part of the authorities would be would be nice, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not even levity to me. It seems like common sense. But yeah, <laughs> thank you yeah. very much. <laughs> We've got time for one more quick question, and I'm sorry about those who missed out. No, that's all right. Thank you. Um, thanks for the talk. It's been really interesting. So 
this is kind of rolling what you were just saying about I'm interested in urban renewal mm. and if you've ever thought about engaging communities in the spaces that you've explored to maybe reinvigorate the spaces and turn them into new things but keep them I mean some of them were taxpayer funded in the past so maybe that could be something taxpayers can retake and reinvigorate yeah it's re it's really interesting I mean in the same way that when you start dumpster diving you realize how much food gets wasted when you start exploring you realize how much space we're wasting Right? And especially in London, we're paying astronomical rent to live in these spaces. And then you find that there's a massive abandoned industrial building. Where, I mean, you can move thousands of people into that. Um, very often, we would, um, there's, a, there's a squatters network in London, and we would you know, sort of give them details when we found access to places. And um, we, we even tried to sort of convince homeless people a few times. We're like, there's a building over here we found. With, with, there's electricity and there's heating. Just go into the building. But of course, you know, um, they're living a very precarious existence and they're concerned that if they get caught trespassing, it's, you know, things are going to get bad for them. So it's, the, it's those boxes again, you know. We're constantly stuck in these boxes and, and we stay in them because we're afraid. And, you know, I just have to wonder what would happen if we all left the box at the same time. <laughs> Before we go, I just want to say uh, to Bradley, what would you be telling people to do when they go out of here today? Obviously not abseil down dark holes, but if people want to take possession of their city in a different way, what are some of those uh, smaller things that you think of that people can do? I, I just think, um, you know, just exploring the city and, and leave your house and just walk in a random direction, you know, <laughs> get as far as you can get and then, you know, take the metro back or take a different route to work every day and try and go through sort of back alleys and discover things. But more than that, I think just, you know, being present, like really paying attention, looking for things. Photography is great for that because when you're, when you're walking around taking photos, well, it's an excuse, isn't it, to kind of linger and to pay attention to stuff. It's, and, and, you know, it sucks that we need an excuse, but um, I, guess, I guess that's, that's the moral of the story. You don't, you know, you don't need an excuse. You can just go and sort of look around and, you know, frame things with your eyes. It's okay. <laughs> you don't have to be embarrassed about this. Um, but yeah, exploring in small ways, it's, I mean, I think you'll find that once you, once you step over a few sort of minor boundaries, it becomes easier and easier. And then, you know, life opens up in a really interesting way. Before we thank Bradley, I want to let you know uh, that he will be signing books in the foyer after this event and that he has a new book coming out uh, shortly, Subterranean London, Cracking the Capital. So for those of you who are more sewer fans rather than shard fans, um, that would be the book. Um, you will be glad to know there are other people with a balaclava interest uh, appearing in the festival and you are still able to come and see uh, uh, Masha Alyekina and Nadia Tolokonikova in a session tomorrow evening talking about Pussy Riot and, their, and Zona Prava. Bradley is speaking in a session tomorrow called Living Dangerously, which is sold out. Some of you will be fortunate enough to have tickets for that. But if you don't, you are able to access that conversation via a live stream. Please join me in thanking Bradley very much. And I look forward to seeing you throughout the weekend. Thank you.